Welcome to the Mission Manhood Podcast, where mature masculinity is celebrated and encouraged. My name is Angela Abide, and I will be your host. Every week or so, I sit down with a man who is in the men's movement, helping men grow and thrive in their masculinity, someone who is exhibiting characteristics of mature masculinity, or someone who has a perspective that might be beneficial for those who are seeking to grow and develop in that area. As a woman, I have a unique perspective as a mother and a therapist, and I hope to contribute to the conversation in those ways. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Today, my guest is Brad. He preferred that I not use his last name. On Instagram, he's at middle-aged survivor, and on Twitter, he's at aged underscore survivor. So I hope you'll follow him. I really enjoyed this conversation. It reminded me so much of growing up and being surrounded by uncles and neighbors and men who just had this common sense wisdom, and it made me realize how much we've changed and what we put our value on and importance. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation, his tale of going from prison, keeping his family intact, what he's up to now, and the things that he's learned along the way. It was very inspiring. Hello, Brad. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for for joining me. I'm happy to be here. I met you through Instagram, like I meet most people, and I I know from talking to you that you're a little bit more active on Twitter, but there was something very appealing to me about your message and and how you're trying to help people, and I just didn't know if you might want to start off by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got here. I would be happy to do that, and it's not a very straight line. Most people's lives aren't very straight lines, I suppose. But uh, I'm 45 years old. I'm married. I have four children, two grown sons, two teenage daughters. Um, I have a pretty darn good life from top to bottom. Uh, About half of my married life was very good and went along smoothly. And in the middle of it, I got into some trouble with uh, my business and the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I did a bunch of years in a federal prison and uh, had my, my life kind of melt down, you might say. Uh, my sons had to grow without me for a handful of years. My wife had to survive without me. We did keep the family together and survived that experience. Since come home and, and restarted life, which has not been easy uh, from the standpoint of there's lots of obstacles for felons, for federal felons in running businesses and borrowing money and, and doing regular people things. But uh, we have a really good life. So, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, oh, it was when COVID hit. My, I had a small car dealership that was profitable and thriving, and March 2020 hit, and by June, we were pretty well out of business. We were small enough, we just couldn't really survive, and so, you know, we had some quarantine time, and I had some free time, and I, you know, I was already on Twitter, and I thought, you know, maybe I ought to start telling this story about having a good life, and then screwing it up, and then kind of how to come back, and how my sons have recovered from this and how they have grown and the lessons they've learned and how we've worked together. And that's how it started. So that was a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's been pretty steady. I've got about 7,000 followers on Twitter. Um, I've tried Instagram a little bit, but I'm not very, I'm not very savvy there. 
certainly that's a good forum. So that's the gist of my story. I mostly talk about not so much redemption from a religious standpoint, but basically the fact that hope is never all the way lost. You can always come back. Your past and your mistakes are always part of your life and will always affect you both negatively and positively, but they're not the end of the world. You can still have meaningful relationships. You can still have great families. You can still be successful in business. You can still become a good man, even if you've been less than that in the past. That's the gist of the message. I love it. And it just makes me really curious because so many people in your situation, I think that would have been like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, of a marriage or a life. And a lot of people can't recover from something like prison, say, that just beats them down. How did you, how did you do that? That is a huge question. First of all, you're correct. Most people don't recover. Most marriages fail. Most relationships break up. Um, a lot of the guys that I was there with that, you know, made it through the time and got out, have struggled with life, struggled to find employment. A lot have committed suicide. There's a lot of suicide. It seems like, you know, three months doesn't go by that I don't find out that so-and-so that I was locked up with has committed suicide. It's epidemic amongst middle-aged men anyway, but amongst the people that I spent time with in the federal prison, it's very high. I think that my survival and success is a combination of, I have a ridiculous level of optimism. I never get too down even when I should, which sometimes causes me problems because I take too big of risks, but I have a high level of optimism. I have a saint for a wife. If there are living saints, then she would be one. I have known my wife since we were probably junior high age. We started dating in the late 90s. We got married in 99. And, you know, we've had a really, really great life. And and it was the level of relationship between us and the connection that said, you know, we're going to tough this out together even though there was terrible harm done to her because of my choices. But her love, support, and companionship has made all the difference in pulling me out of, you know, what could have been a suicidal situation or or that sort of thing. So the love of my wife, the love of my children, uh, my optimism, and, and also really good people around me. You know, I came home thinking that everybody was going to treat me terrible and it was going to be kind of scary and difficult. And I was wearing an ankle monitor and I was on house arrest for a while afterwards. And my experience was the opposite. My neighbors were so glad to see me home and people were welcoming and kind. And a fellow that I was an acquaintance gave me a job, you know, making 10 bucks an hour, which wasn't much, but it was a start and treated me like a professional and like an adult. And so really other people, good people, giving you a second chance and then being willing to give myself a second chance is probably the hallmark of how I survived. Yeah. When you found out that you had to go to prison, I mean, I can't even imagine. (laughs) It's terrible. Sort of optimistic going in. Like, did you decide before you went in that I'm not going to let this break me or did that develop after? A little of both. I was a disaster mentally when I was getting ready to go in. You know, everything happened odd. It really didn't happen the way we were told it was going to happen. And the sentence was, you know, three times what we were told it was going to be. It was kind of a bad experience, as you can imagine. But a lot of it was naivety and stupidity on my part. 
So I was a bit of a mess. I'm also epileptic. And so the, you know, the stress and pressure had my epilepsy out of control. I didn't have a driver's license. It really was a terrible, terrible time. During that time, I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor mm-hmm. Frankl. Yeah. And my dad, my dad was a voracious reader and he always had told me about that book, but I'd never read it. And he talked about having a defined purpose and that's how you survive tough stuff. And so I basically wrote out on paper, here's some things that I can accomplish, some purposes I can have. So I'm going to be locked up away from my family. There's nothing good about that. But here's some things that I can fix while I'm there, maybe. I did get a a strong purpose going in, and that did help me hold on to some level of strength, I guess, as I walked in that day. I went into prison on December 18th. And the week before Christmas, it was humiliating. It was wintertime. It was cold. They took everything away from me. I remember I just had to stand on the sidewalk in my socks and my sweats and my T-shirt in about a foot of snow to wait to go into the intake. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a reminding you who you are and, you know, what it's going to be like. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, holy cow. I cannot believe this is happening. It was so surreal. But at the same time, I was ready to begin because I was ready to get into it and get it over with. I felt pretty strong from the very beginning. That didn't last very long. It wasn't very long until I got in there. I realized that I was in over my head. And it took about a year to really settle into where I felt like I could survive it. I can't even imagine. Just that feeling of powerlessness or not being able to escape, not having that agency. I sat down in a little hallway next to a man, a Hispanic man, who's my friend to this day. And he said, you know, how long are you going to be here? And I said, I don't really know, you know, four or five years. And and he acted like that was a tiny amount of time. He'd already done 20 years and he was on his last four and he thought it was going to be great and no problem. And boy, you're going to have it. You're going to be out of here in no time. And I remember thinking this guy is crazy because it seemed like an eternity to me. There was a feeling of falling the darkness where there was no bottom. Yeah. And I felt that way for a while. It was tough. I just respect so much that, you know, that whole principle of the Victor Frankl book, when everything is taken from you, even your dignity, you can still control your attitude. And I think that's what you eventually did. I mean, yeah, it took you a year and that makes complete sense to kind of get grounded there. But there's a picture of you on Instagram where you're in prison and you have the biggest smile on your face. Yeah. And you say in the caption that this was an authentic smile. And it was. You credited your daily routine. And I wondered if you could mm-hmm. say something about how that became important to sure. you. Sure. Boy, that that might have been the number one survival tool. And a lot of the guys that have done a lot of time said that from the very beginning. You find a routine and most of your routines given to you, you know, by the system. But you find a routine that's comfortable for you and you get used to it and that's what you focus on. But that particular picture, if I remember right, it was about three years in. I was healthier than I'd been in many, many years. I'm a fat guy. I come from a family of fat Italian. My dad yeah. was 400 pounds my whole life. He died young, which is terrible. Um, I'm right now about 40 pounds higher than I ought to be. When I went into prison, I was like 70 pounds overweight. By that time, I was at a very good weight. I could run a marathon. I could lift weights. And I was I was happy and healthy, and a lot of it revolved around a healthy routine. You'd think that would be not something you could have in prison, but I had a healthy routine. 
I got up at the same time because I was forced to. Um, I had a job in the medical clinic where I kept notes and I cleaned and waxed the floor and, and uh, did that sort of thing. And I got paid 17 cents an hour, but it made me feel like a regular person. Yeah. And so that was part of my routine. And then you would a mail call and then you went worked out. And on the weekends, you, you know, you went to the track and you walked or you ran or you played softball or whatever. But a daily routine gave me something to focus on so that even in a day in prison where I really accomplished nothing in the grand scheme of things, mm -hmm. my family was in financial straits. My children were suffering without a father. Life was terrible really, because I completed things in my routine, I felt like, like a success. It was moderately false because in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't successful, but it always gave me a sense of fulfillment. And I can say with total honesty that I was pretty happy and there was devastating times and I'd call home and talk to my wife and talk to my children and it was heart-wrenching. You can't even imagine what it felt like. But as a general rule, because of the daily routine and sticking to it and, you know, doing what I could, I was pretty happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's so um, helpful for people today because there's so many people that feel like the world is just getting too big and swirling out of control. And that right. feeling of helplessness sort of freezes them and makes them paralyzed. That's and, a great point. Yeah. I think that's how people can relate. And you said also on Instagram, I'm no therapist nor do I have a therapist. It's not that I don't believe in therapy, but experience is a great teacher and journaling is a great listener. And when I write about experiences, I gain relief and wisdom and order. So was that a part of your coping strategy too, is just to journal? It was. Uh, at first, I wrote constantly about all the terrible feelings that I had, anger and bitterness and whatever. It was disjointed. It was dark. It was not for public consumption. I didn't mm -hmm. want anybody to ever read it. In fact, I threw a lot of that away. I wish I hadn't. But I found that the best therapy for me, and still is, was writing. Yeah. Because the paper never judged me, never raised its eyebrows when I said something outrageous, um, never tattled on me, never told its friend, never whispered to its spouse what he'd heard in a therapy session. I don't know that that happens. I'm sure it does. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. But even when you tell a close friend, there's a likelihood that something you say might get out. So I always felt like I had a confidential friend in my paper and I could be so brutally honest, no matter how horrific or terrible a thing sounded, uh, I could write it in that on that paper. I just had a yellow pad and I must have, I don't know, I don't know how many, maybe hundreds of yellow pads that I filled during my years there. And that was, that was so valuable to me. And I still do it when I get, I don't do it daily because life's busy. And, but when I get to my most frustrated or most blue or most whatever moments, writing is my best therapy, even still. And order, I think I said on there, it gives me order. Yeah, you did. The world is chaotic, mostly because of these smartphones. We never get a break. And now I have a smart watch. Now, now I got an Apple watch I got for yeah. Christmas. And now it tells me when to stand up, when to sit down, when to think. It drives me crazy. I can't stand it, but my wife loves it. Our lives are chaotic because we never disconnect from this weird interconnectedness we're in. We never disconnect. So when I disconnect and sit and read on a paper and write on paper, I feel a lot more order in my brain. I think there's something really powerful about getting it outside of you. 
it's almost like yeah, vomiting so. emotionally, you know? Right, right. It's, you feel better. I mean, you might not be well, you but feel you feel better once it's outside of you and you can kind of examine it. Yeah. And one other thing I think, I think is, right. yeah, really important that you said for people listening is don't censor yourself because we yeah, do that to right. ourselves too. Like just let that part of you vent and then you have, you understand what you're dealing with. And to you your know, point, if you need to throw it away, fine, but, but be authentic to yourself at least. But you said two words there. You said understand and authentic. And those are critical. You know, one of the things that happens with people that are, that are liars or that commit crime or do something bad is they never face the music from the standpoint mm -hmm. of they lie to themselves about their own mistakes. I saw guys in prison, especially religious people, who couldn't bring themselves to accept their own wrongdoing. And you know, those people became such terrible liars or they became totally insane because they were, they were living such a lie. I wrote today on Twitter, how many lies are you living? If you're living more than zero, your life could be better. One of the things that I learned early on in writing helped with this was if you will be authentic with yourself and come to an understanding of there are some bad things about me still, there's darkness in me and everybody. We're not all sweetness and light. We all have, I don't know what you'd call it, the, you know, the natural the shadow man. side. Or yeah, the, the shadow side, whatever you want to call it. It's a real thing. And we live in the civilized world. Well, when I went into a less civilized world, I found that I had even more of that than I thought. Uh, my feelings about the judge who I felt had wronged me and a previous partner and the prosecutor who I felt was a scoundrel the, the feelings I had about those people were new feelings for me. They were not for public consumption and the yeah. things that I thought and did, you know, in my mind. So when I came to understand that I had a lot of, I guess we call it darkness inside of me. And some of those things were the reason I was in trouble to begin with. Mm -hmm. Once I kind of recognized that in myself and accepted it, it went a long ways towards starting to love myself again. Yeah. Because if you're not authentic with yourself and you say things like, well, you know, I'm not like this and I'm like this. And you have this self image that is a good self image, but is a lie. You, you can't have good mental health that way. So understanding yourself and being authentic with yourself is great. I mean, the worst lies you can tell are the ones you tell yourself. You wrote something that goes along with that, that I thought was so powerful. You said, you have three choices. You can accept yourself, you can lie to yourself, or you can kill yourself. And yep. number one is the hardest. Accepting yeah, yourself, forgiving yourself, and, and making something out of the mess is the hardest. It's easier to lie right. to yourself. It so, is. It's so but, much easier. That's what we do. Um, but you will eventually kill yourself if you lie to yourself. If you live that split life for so long, eventually you will die from stress, anxiety, whatever, or you will actually commit suicide. I saw that so often amongst people in prison that they could not accept themselves for who they were. And it drove them mad and, and drove them to where the point where they could, they either had to separate themselves from themselves because they just couldn't stand it. And that's dangerous. That, that's a dangerous thing. But telling yourself the truth sucks. Yeah, it does. But, you know, you lay there in a, you lay there in a prison cell day after day and night after night and hour after hour, and you have so much time to think. And I can remember remembering 
small misdeeds I'd made as a child. I, it's like I could remember everything wrong I'd ever done because I had so much time to think about. It. And you can't hide from yourself. And that's there's value to that if you can stand mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you wrote about five things that I thought it was such a great little process to go through. And the first thing you said is you have to forgive yourself. And, you know, you're doing that inventory and coming up with everything that you feel like you've ever done wrong, but working through that and forgiving yourself and then apologizing to the people that you've heard if it's appropriate to do so. And then stopping the bad behavior. That was the third one. Yep. The fourth one is to work on your mental health and work on your confidence. Yep. So that's just such a great process. And I, I look at the mental health as kind of like who you are, who you were created to be, kind of like that inalienable right. You are a citizen. That kind of, it's true. And then yeah. that confidence is like how you make yourself proud of yourself. Like you right. said, in prison, you're making 17 cents an hour, but it made you proud of yourself <laughs> to be productive yeah. and to do something. Right, right. But- that process of of building confidence in the right way will change everything because then you can have confidence in yourself even when you're failing because when you're totally honest with yourself and you've forgiven yourself and you're trying to do your best and you've made amends the best way you can and you're just trying to do the best you can it doesn't mean you're not hurting feelings and making mistakes sure but when when you're building your confidence based upon honesty with yourself and decent human behavior, you can maintain self-confidence and mental health. You still have stress, you still have anxiety, but you can maintain a baseline level of confidence and even happiness, even when thing all, things all fall apart. There's so much value to that. And I think a lot of men are conditioned to believe that it's what they produce or what they become sure. or what they achieve. And I've heard a lot of men say that their wife or their partner would say things like, I don't trust you. and Sure. They'll say, but I've never been unfaithful to her. But when you're living a lie, you've bought into your own lie, and then you ask people to buy into it as well. They are kind of on shaky ground. Yes. To your point, when you're true to yourself and authentic to yourself and you don't lie to yourself, everyone around you can trust you. So yep. even if it's things aren't, aren't going great, at least they have that foundation to stand on. That's right. And, and that's been the biggest challenge for my spouse and I. So when I got into trouble, she had no clue oh. that we were underwater, that we were into trouble. So when I got indicted, it was a total side. It was, she got sideswiped by it. Uh, I had completely kept it from her and even mm-hmm. out and out lied to her about some of the things that were happening. And here we are all these years later, and it's, trust is a really hard thing to regain. I work very hard to be completely honest with myself in every way to the point of brutality with those around me because I fear that type of an experience again. And even as hard as that is, we still struggle with that issue because once trust is broken, it's very, very hard. But you said it, men are are judged on what we get, what we produce. That, that's the way it is. But even still, you can have baseline peace, joy, self-confidence, even love yourself when you're sucking at the things the world tells you you should be good at if you're not living a lie. The number one challenge continues to be building the trust that was lost when I was indicted by the feds. Mm-hmm. She knew that money was tight and the business yeah. wasn't going that well. 
but I had kind of swept it under the rug and kind of kept it going, which really ended up being my crime, by the way. I, I, was, I was essentially indicted for lying. And I thought I could just kind of work it out. So I was working with them and whatever, and they're not going to indict me and we're going to work it out. And then they did without me knowing. So I found out about it when it hit the newspaper, the local newspaper. That's how we found out. So I had no way of prepping her. She had no idea. It just exploded. It's the worst thing you could ever imagine, I think. I mean, if I had been run over by a train, it would have been better. And that's the truth. It would have been much better for me to have died in a tragic accident. But the trust thing has never come back fully. Once that is broken, it is so hard. I have a close friend who is a wildly successful man in every way. He's wealthy. He's in in great shape. He's handsome. He has great businesses. Uh, He's a good person. He gives to charity. He's got a great family. And his wife was unfaithful to him some years ago. And no matter how good his life is, and they've stayed together and worked it out and they love each other and and whatever, but he's never fully trusting ever. And, And neither is my spouse. And so, man, if you can avoid breaking trust with the ones you love don't ever do it and then once you do you have to be so careful you have it to be so to rebuild it does it, it is so hard I mean we're years years later and it still is a constant struggle for her to trust me and mm-hmm. I work really hard at it that's something that's really a challenge I just feel like a lot of what you do is from a more mature, masculine perspective, kind of a father energy. You're you're just trying to do what's best for the people in your life. The more immature person would look at that and take it personally. Like, you don't trust me after all this time, instead of owning it and like providing an environment that she can trust you. You know, there's times when it wears on me and I say things like, what the hell? What else can I do? And whatever else, because I obviously... I'm a regular man and I get frustrated sometimes, but on the inside, I always know right where the guilt lies. And this whole self-discovery, I guess you'd call it, that I gained in prison was, it's stupid to point fingers, make excuses, because on the inside, you know when you're the guilty party. You know that you're the problem and you know that certainly other people could make it easier or whatever, mm-hmm. but but you know when, you know when, when you're the problem. And the best thing you can do is be honest about that. So my son, my oldest son, he's 20 years old. He's in college, great kid, really smart, but he's dating a girl right now and they're getting kind of serious. And my advice to him always is ever tell her a lie. You can fail. You can do whatever. Don't tell her a lie. Not even a little white lie. Well, that kind of leads us sort of perfectly into one of the last things I want to talk to you about is you talk a lot about your ability to change the world. And I love that you say, start with yourself and then it works out from there. Like if you change yourself, get yourself together, then your family will change. Then you can influence your friends and then your community. Sure. And again, in this crazy time that we find ourselves in, I think people bury their head in the sand. They're in denial. They're thinking they're powerless, but every single person alive can start with me. I can start with me and change. And it's the only way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the big lie is that the government can fix it or money can fix it or some new social program can fix it or whatever. We tried all that. The amount of money we've spent on public education, and it's worse than ever, tells you all you need to know about that. You know, the foreign aid, we send 
trillions of dollars to third world countries so that their people aren't starving and their people are starving. Top-down approaches to every issue don't work. Not only is it empowering to recognize that you can always do something no matter what the world's doing, but it's also good to recognize that that's really the only way. Uh, for us to turn around what I consider to be a rapidly declining society in the West, it's scary because it's going to take us doing it and probably generations to do it. I have to be a good person doing the best I can. Not perfect, not, I don't have to be a Christian. I don't have to even be religious. I, you know, I don't know. I don't care about any of that. I have to be a decent neighbor, a decent human being. I need to treat my wife right. I need to raise my children to be as good a citizens as I can. I need to tell them the truth and teach them about the world. And then they need to do the same with their children. And I need to tell my brother and then he needs yeah. to tell his kids. And it has to be bottom up. That's the only way you can have any long lasting change. And in the end, the only power I have is over my own life. Mm -hmm. And then the life of my family and even the life of my family is not even in my power. My yeah. children are going to do whatever the hell they want to do. Yeah. They're going to go out and live their life. Yeah. yeah. You know, my parents were, I had great parents and I still screwed my life up royally. My only power in the whole world is doing the best I can myself. And I that's, agree. that's, that's, I think that's pretty empowering. I think it takes all this scary thing about the whole world coming down to the end it takes it away because it's like, well, I can't fix that anyway. I'm going to yeah. work on myself. Every day. Just. Yeah. Right. You had a quote by someone named Blakenhorn that ended with the key for society is to create fathers. Yeah. And I always tell people it happens on three levels. Like it happens within your own heart and then it happens in your relationships and then it can happen in the world. And I feel like your experience in becoming that great father to yourself, like the buck stops here, I'm going to take accountability yeah. and you transforming your own life. And then that flows outward toward your wife and children. Sure. And then like your Twitter account, now you're able to help people in the world, your 7,000 followers, because sure. you started in your own heart, becoming a good father to you. Right. I've not thought of it that way. Uh, but that, that is a good way to think of it. I had a great father. Yeah. Sadly, he died young. He died when I was 20, what was I, 23 maybe. But he was a good, good, good father, a great man. A failure at nearly everything measurable. He failed yeah. in business. He never had any money. He was never healthy. He died young. But he raised six great kids. And he taught us to love each other. And the family came first. And he taught us about honesty and he taught us about family and that's super important but even still when it got right down to it i had to be the father of myself i'm glad you yeah. said it that way i've never thought of it that way you have to do for yourself you take yeah. everything you can from everyone you can but in the end you're the one that has to wake up in the morning and put your pants on and go do it and i love what you said about like you're facing the hardest time of your life and you realize or you remember that this book that your father had given you or and a lesson that yeah. he gave you, you had that strong yeah. foundation going in, but you still had to take it. You had to take your life and take responsibility for it. And that way you could move forward and start to influence others as well. Yep. And it takes small steps. It's small steps. It takes time. Becoming everything we want to become takes a lifetime. It takes 
small steps and we shouldn't be discouraged about small steps. I mean, you know, today I've got three windshields to replace. I've got some collecting to do. I'm hoping to get out and go on a date with my wife tonight. I'm not going to do anything all that special today. But if I do a good job of work and I make enough money to pay my mortgage and put food on the table and my wife and I go to a movie and dinner and, and we have a good night and that's not bad. I can go to Beautiful. I can go to bed tonight and think, you know, I'm I'm all right. Yeah. I'm all right. It's small steps, small steps. And I think life is made up of just millions and millions of tiny steps. And just in conclusion, you taught, said about mental illness. There's so many people that are suffering with mental illness. And you listed three things that you need to work on. And one is to discover your purpose. Like you said, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. you know, doing what I need to do today. And I'm going to be with my wife this evening. And yeah. Finding a way to make money, even if it's multiple streams, even if you're delivering Whatever. pizzas for a while. And then the last thing was to take care of your health. We, and I, you know, it's not as complex as we make. We have definitions for everything. Yeah, we're we depressed. Do. We're anxious. We're bipolar. We're schizophrenic. We're, while we were just sitting here, I got a message from my aunt who is schizophrenic. We have all these definitions and they're all real. And some of them are chemical imbalances. But so many of them are a result of no purpose, more debts than we have income, and that stress is that stress is murderous. I don't care what anybody says, but if you don't have enough money to pay your bills and buy your wife dinner and put food on the table and put braces on your kid, you're not going to be mentally healthy because you're miserable. So if you're depressed and you're miserable, and most of that's because you got a cell phone bill coming due in two weeks, you can't pay it, then damn it, get some more money. Having a purpose, getting enough money, and then when your health is bad. So, for example, I've gained like 20 pounds in the last six months, and I feel like crap. I can't sleep because I'm too heavy. My shoulders hurt, and my hands, I have arthritis, and that causes extra anxiety and stress. If we were healthy and had a defined purpose with what we wanted to do every day, most mental illness would just melt away. Yeah, We wouldn't be depressed. We wouldn't be anxious. We wouldn't have those problems. I love the way you put it on simple terms. And again, kind of like that father energy, just saying, hey, these are three things that you can do or identify or start with and, and get you on the journey toward, toward feeling yeah. better. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. You're a real inspiration. Like I appreciate that. Well, I think we get caught up in this is sort of the feminine energy. We get caught up in that perpetual healing. Like we want to keep yeah. digging. And I think that's yeah. super important. Just like we were talking about writing out your feelings. But at sure. some point you have to flip over to action and purpose and, and get yep. going with it as well. So it's that balance that's going to be where you need to go. I mean, you can think yourself to death. And I always tell my wife, as much as I'm not crazy about standing outside in the 42 degree weather and, and working on this car, I am so much happier when I'm doing something. I am so much happier when it's three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I always joke about that middle-aged man, 4 a.m. panic attack. <laughs> we all have them. Maybe women have them too. It's four in the morning and you wake up and you're worried about all the things you're worried about and you panic and it's terrible. and There's nothing you can do because it's four in the morning and it's still dark. It's way better when you're working, when you're doing something. And mm-hmm. so it's good to have the thoughts and it's good to write and it's good to therapy and all those things. But if you can do something to better your situation, which might only be walking a mile after work, your mental health will be so much better. The small things that we can do to help ourselves. Yeah. Thanks for joining me and sharing your wisdom with us today. 
thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I do enjoy talking about it because, you know, when you talk about it, you realize you've learned a few lessons. Yeah, you definitely do. I appreciate it. And I think what you're doing is wonderful. Keep it thank up. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great date tonight. Thanks. Bye-bye.